listening to a podcast from The National. As the ebb and flow of ancient civilizations progressed into classical antiquity and through into the Middle Ages to today, Al-Quds, or Jerusalem, has passed through dozens of different administrative bodies. Under the rule of a range of different people, from Bronze Age pagans to today as the capital of Palestine, the city has been key in the creation of civilizations for the last 7,000 years. Although this is common for any city that has been occupied for millennia to be ruled by different powers, Jerusalem is unique in that it ranks high in the most fought over city in history. As the seat of some of the world's holiest sites, that should come as no surprise to any historian. The wiping out of people, the butchering of cultures, the complete exodus of entire civilizations is, unfortunately, part and parcel of the human story. But what we accept as events in history would be almost inconceivable as news today. So when an attempt is made to delegitimize Palestinians, no matter how symbolic it is, people cannot and should not accept it as mere historical occurrence. It is the unfortunate truth that Jerusalem still witnesses this struggle well into its modern era, as the events of the past have become the atrocities of today. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasser Wesmi, and today we'll be talking about President Donald Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And later, we'll touch on the importance of learning Arabic as a foreigner in the region. Bear with me, two very brief ones. What is the capital of Israel? Uh, the president announced yesterday, issued a proclamation declaring the United States recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. So the answer to the question is Jerusalem. That's Correct. exactly right. What country is Jerusalem in? Uh, the president recognized Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. Does that mean then that the U.S. government officially recognizes that Jerusalem, the municipality, lies within the state of Israel? There has been no change in our policy uh, with respect to consular practice or passport issuance at this time. That was AP reporter Matt Lee last week in Washington looking for clarification from U.S. Assistant Secretary for Near East Affairs, David M. Satterfield. Now I'm joined by Joseph Dana, a writer for The National who has covered the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and continues to write about the topic today. What does it mean that uh, Trump has recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel when almost no one else does? Well, to be honest with you, I don't think it really means all that much. And I know that might sound like a a very verbose statement given the the reaction to this um, this declaration but i think that this this decision by trump really hinges on his domestic political calculation um, as anybody that's looking at the news understands trump's approval ratings are at all-time lows historic lows he suffered a pretty bad defeat in alabama by supporting the uh... the candidate that lost and the Republicans are very, very concerned about their prospects in 2019 and then further afield. And so what Trump needs to do is he needs to raise a lot of money to prepare and insulate himself for this, what's going to be a very aggressive campaign to stay in power. And the way he's going to do that, one of the surefire ways he can do that is by going to his evangelical base and some of the pro-Israel supporters like Sheldon Edelson, the, uh, the casino magnate, Haim Saban, who is a Democratic supporter, but a very big kind of pro-Israel guy, and the evangelical base, and kind of throw them some red meat. So by, by declaring Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel, 
this is going to uh, to enable him to raise uh, probably a significant amount of money and kind of buff up his war chest for these fights to stay in power. Um, what that means in terms of American foreign policy and the legacy of this decision is, you know, up, up for debate. I think one of the most interesting aspects of this whole fiasco in the last week is, uh, is a conversation that happened at the State Department during a routine State Department briefing. An AP reporter, uh, Matt Lee, who's known for kind of asking very direct and sometimes funny questions about the Israel-Palestine conflict, um, brought up the issue with the, uh, the State Department spokesman and said, you know, what does this mean? And the State Department person was like, you know, look, the president has issued an, uh, an executive order recognizing uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And then Matt Lee, the reporter, said, okay, what country is Jerusalem in? And the State Department spokesman couldn't answer the question. So it kind of highlights the, the absurdity of the situation in terms of what does this actually mean going forward. Um, so that's a kind of long-winded answer saying that I, I don't necessarily think we have clarity on where um, the United States is ultimately going to sit, whether or not this means that the embassy is going to move, what's going to happen even next week. But we do have clarity on the fact that Donald Trump is desperate for political um, uh, insulation. It's desperate for campaign money and is trying to uh, rally his base in any way, shape or form. Right. But I mean, many Palestinians are saying that this is the end of the two-state solution. Uh, the, the move has already sparked violent uh, confrontations between Palestinian protesters and Israeli soldiers. So, I mean, things are happening in, in Palestine already that, that as a result of this decision, no? Absolutely. I think from the Palestinian perspective, the, the, the street, uh, the, Palis the so-called Palestinian street, has, has long wanted uh, uh, the kind of uh, realization that the two-state solution, or at least the peace process that we use, has been nothing but uh, a smokescreen for Israeli you know, occupation and continued land grabs. The issue is that their leadership uh, in the Palestinian Authority with Mahmoud Abbas and, and his uh, cohorts have been fighting tooth and nail to keep this two-state solution framework in place. It's the only thing that they understand. It can be argued that they are the, the last ones fighting for this actual uh, agreement as envisioned by Oslo, and now they can't do that anymore. Now they can't hide behind this. They can't, you know, Jerusalem has basically been taken away from them, uh, at least rhetorically, and so they have to confront the reality of uh, endless Israeli occupation, of uh, basically this single uh, entity, this one-state uh, apartheid-like situation that exists between the river and the sea in Israel and Palestine, and they're going to have to deal with um, with the ramifications of that from their own constituents. And that is a, a much bigger question. Yes, we've seen clashes and violence around Jerusalem. We've seen clash and, clashes and violence in Palestinian villages and in checkpoints and whatnot. Um, but we are going to, I mean, the, the question will be whether or not those clashes and that, that kind of violence also turns on the PA and the, the kind of um, actual infrastructure, the architecture of the occupation, because the Palestinian Authority does serve in one form or another as a subcontractor for Israeli occupation through its security services, through uh, a variety of different means. And so if we see Palestinians turning on that and saying, okay, enough is enough, these systems that have been set in place for the last 30 years do not work and they keep us in this situation, then we're going to be entering a new phase. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen right now, but it is, in my opinion, somewhat inevitable. And so it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. 
The move, uh, I mean, has clearly been w- widely criticized. Uh, the U.S. just vetoed a draft, uh, a U.N. Security Council resolution rejecting the president's decision. But, I mean, there's concern that this might feed in to another reason to justify both sides of extremist rhetoric in the region. Is this move likely to have regional implications? And, and I mean, what would those be? Well, that's uh, that's a that's a very important question, which is, you know, where does Palestine fit in terms of the regional reaction? I don't think I think that the reaction uh, around the Arab world to this move has been tepid at best from a leadership perspective. Yes, we've had the condemnations, and yes, we've had the you know forceful condemnations that this is so bad. Um, but there is a very big gulf between people being very, very angry on social media, uh, on Arab social media, and uh, any sort of official um, moves against uh, this decision, uh, both you know, vis-a-vis the United States or Israel. And so um, if I was sitting in Palestine right now, I would feel somewhat abandoned. You know, I, I don't know if I would look to the rest of the Arab world and say, you know, we have um, leaders in various area, Arab capitals that are going to come to our aid. You can see that the Turks under Erdogan, some some parts of the Lebanese political spectrum, there are some players that are trying to capitalize on this and bring back the issue of Jerusalem and Palestine to the forefront of uh, the kind of Arab world agenda. But they're also doing that for their own regional and political calculations. You know, Erdogan has, has used the Palestine issue um, quite extensively um, for his own domestic uh, popularity, but you know, that also doesn't correspond with the reality of how Turkey operates with Israel. You know, Turkey, this is, it's a very good example to talk about. Turkey was, under Erdogan, was very strong uh, about what what was going on in Gaza. Um, You know, he he has been very uh, warm with uh, Hamas leadership there, and yet Turkish Airlines, which is a state airline, uh, its most popular uh, and lucrative uh, route is between Tel Aviv and Istanbul. And so you don't actually see any sort of, you don't see, Erdogan coming out and saying, you know what, we're so angry about this, we're cutting the Tel Aviv-Istanbul route on Turkish Airlines. You don't see that at all because the economic calculation is still beneficial for him. But you do see the fiery rhetoric. I think the issue is that you don't see some of that fiery rhetoric from other places in the Arab world. And and like I said, from a Palestinian perspective, I would be very concerned about that. I mean, speaking of gulfs, uh, the GCC, uh, what is it? I mean, what... What is its reaction now? And and is this is another example that Trump is willing to make decisions that just don't take into consideration what the regional implications might be. I mean, how will this influence GCC's relationship with Washington? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't think that it, it will influence the GCC's relationship with Washington in any right. sort of meaningful way. I mean, you can see that this has been a very big plot line especially in social media, uh, after this uh, declaration, you know, where are the Saudis? Why, why aren't the Saudis more forceful in this? Yes, they issued a condemnation, but yeah. that's it. I mean, what, what have the Saudis done? Have the Saudis recalled their ambassador to, to Washington because of this uh, incredible, uh, you know, uh, historic declaration of giving Jerusalem to the Israelis? No, you yeah. haven't seen any of that. Uh, why isn't Jared Kushner summoned to Riyadh to talk about what's going on and why he's playing this game in the Middle East when he's supposed to be brokering a peace? Right. Um, so I, I don't necessarily see uh, that kind of backlash. That's not to say that it couldn't happen, but if you're uh, in the Trump administration and you've made this decision, uh, like I said, at least from my perspective, to raise money from your donors in, in, in the United States for these you know, hard-fought political battles that are about to, to take place, 
uh, you know, is this in your calculation? Are you worried about Saudi Arabia and, and any sort of fallout? I, I don't see any evidence of that. I mean, maybe that will change. Maybe if we do see a spark on the ground uh, inside of Palestine in which Palestinians say, you know what, we cannot trust the Palestinian Authority, we cannot trust the Israelis, we cannot trust the Americans, we cannot trust even people in the Arab world. We have to take this on ourselves like, like we did during the first Intifada, and we have to go into you know, a, a position of civil disobedience and nonviolent resistance to the occupation. And then you know, the Israelis react with a forceful hand, and then all of a sudden we're in a different situation. Then we could see a different calculus. But right now, I think that, um, that Trump hasn't really had to pay that much of a price for this historic uh, you know, declaration. Another topic dear to Arabs' hearts is the language itself. Arabic is spoken by more than 420 million people around the world, from Morocco all the way to Iraq, and it is the official language of 22 countries. However, with more people learning English, Arabic is becoming not only less spoken, but increasingly more difficult to learn when you can just get by with the world's lingua franca. This is particularly pertinent to English-speaking residents who come to the UAE think that they'll just pick up the language living in an Arab-speaking country. They'll soon find out that they can more than just get by by speaking English here. Some, though, still make it a point to learn what is widely regarded as a very difficult language to learn. Assistant foreign editor Laura McKinsey has been learning Arabic for the last couple of years, shortly after she moved here from the UK. And for Arabic Language Day, she interviewed Amr al-Sibai, academic manager at the Mother Tongue Arabic Language Center in the country. Amr is from Aleppo, Syria, but has lived in the UAE for 12 years. Before that, he worked as an Arabic teacher in Syria, which is widely regarded as one of the intellectual centers of the language. Today, he continues to spread his passion for the language in the UAE and talks about the importance of learning Arabic, despite some feeling like it is unnecessary. So first off, Amma, thank you so much for agreeing to join us today. It's great to have you on the show. Um, the UAE is home to people from all over the world, and they all speak different languages. And as a result, English has become the most common way in which people communicate with each other here. So why do you still think it's important for people living in the UAE to learn and speak Arabic? Because it's Arabic country. On the contrary, so the uh, correspondence, the correspondence, uh, 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 between uh, the Arab people here and speech and uh, uh, also uh, the talking Arab with each, with each other and also with the culture. So everybody use Arabic here. And also uh, uh, b- b- uh, many, many embassies, companies, hospitals, schools, universities talk to us every day to study Arabic. That's b- big reason to... Uh, there's... Uh, so make them speak Arabic, and they want to study Arabic. Of course, there is many, many, because there is many nationalities here in this country, of course, they make them speak English and try to study English, but they still speak Arabic. They're still proud uh, to, to speak Arabic and learn people to speak Arabic. So expats living in the UAE who don't come from Arabic-speaking countries, why do you think it's important for them to learn Arabic whilst they're here? Because lots of people don't bother to learn it. Um, because actually, uh, um, the, uh, uh, it's, it's a very old language, and there is more than 400 million persons speak Arabic in this region. And actually, more than 1 billion and more than 1 billion 
person want to speak uh, Arabic. Because many things, cultures and religion and many things, that's make it uh, that's uh, one of important language in the world. That's why make them here try to come from outside to study Arabic and to know what where the best way and uh, best uh, place to study Arabic. It's it's really uh, back again for about the culture. Mm-hmm. And the students that you have at, at your language school, mother tongue, what what do they find most difficult about learning Arabic? Most difficult, I think they think Arabic is difficult, but there is no. I think it's not difficult language. So when they come to us to study Arabic, and they see, uh, oh, it's it's okay, it's not uh, it's not really difficult like what we heard. We have some pronunciation maybe from deep uh, your deep throat. Maybe this is one of uh, difficult things from ha or a. This this letter is a little bit difficult. We have something about grammar, deep grammar in Arabic. But uh, in general, it's easy. It's not difficult. You can just talk and uh, we, we try to tell all the students in the mother tongue, please try to speak Arabic with us and they will show you it's not difficult, not like what you hear. But people, because people hear about uh, Arabic language, uh, uh, it's difficult because the, the grammar is difficult. Yes, the deep grammar is difficult. So when we reach to deep grammar, uh, we have a way to make it easy, don't worry. <laughs> and what are the most common reasons that your students give you for wh- why they want to learn Arabic? Actually, many reasons. In UAE, we found many reasons. And that's why that's, what, that's my amazing thing, thing in UAE. So the, uh, many like culture. So here the culture in UAE really... Uh, uh, good and uh, interesting. So people try to understand the culture here. Uh, this is one of them. One of and some of them also for the find a good opportunity for the work uh, in Arabic. Some of them just try to uh, study Arabic like uh, religion uh, reason. And uh, some of them he want to just talk to his girlfriend maybe or his wife. So many reasons. That's make it actually amazing in UAE. Mm-hmm. And what's the most unusual reason? And you've ever heard from a student about why they want to learn it? Strangest reason here uh, um, to know Arabic, just to to have fun, maybe. Uh, and uh, I think there is no strangest reason. So all reason is good for us. Just try to study Arabic and just try to study. Um, I didn't find any strangest for for us. It's all it's okay for us. <laughs> and have you had many students? who have managed to reach a really high standard of Arabic? Is there anyone that's managed to become fluent? Yes, we have many reasons. Many, many students, uh, we have many students uh, study uh, and reach to, to high levels and finish the 18 levels in Mother Tank Center. When you finish 18 levels, you can study in Arabic universities. And uh, I still meet them and still just, uh, we have uh, relation with them and some of them I know some of them now teaching uh, Arabic in their countries, and I saw some videos uh, on their websites, and they can speak very well. Wow. So it's possible for an expat in the UAE to to go from not speaking Arabic to becoming an Arabic teacher? Yes, of course. Of course. Most of them, I saw them teaching Arabic in, in their countries. Yeah. Wow. That's that's very impressive. <laughs> yes. And and what tips or advice would you give to people in the UAE who are trying to learn Arabic? Join to Arab 
and talk to them. Don't worry. Don't worry for any mistakes. Everybody here will help you uh, and will correct you. Okay, don't be shy and speak. Like an Arabic man, I really be, I will be glad if I see any non-native non speaker speak and care about my language. I really will help him. I will, I will, I will, I will encourage him and I will try to make him uh, happy and I will be happy anyway. So and I'll try to make them happy and uh, because he, they care about my language. So don't worry, just to speak and practice because you know any language, just practicing. So practice and talk to Arab people. The Arab people, they like people when they speak Arabic. So that's why, uh, don't worry, just speak. I'd like to thank Joseph Dana, Laura McKenzie, and Al Masbehi for joining me on the show. I'd also like to thank Kevin Jeffers for producing. You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Extra Time and Business Extra on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your episodes from. I've been your host, Nasal Wesmi. Thank you for listening and goodbye.